0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking
1: requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com slash laststandmedia. (music) Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by my my, my brother, my brother, Dagan, kiddo Moriarty, Dagan. Thank you for joining me today. How are you?
0: Colin, poison my fish heads, Moriarty. Yes. I, I just I don't I purposely don't think of them before we start. So it's just whatever pops in my head. Pie May. Pie Pi May. Colin yeah. May. Crane up?
1: style. Crane style. How's life? How's life? Now, Dig, you had said that I had asked how you were and you said you had some something to share. I don't know.
0: Yeah. A story I would or... proudly relate my morning to you. But you know Please. what? Let's just we could be real here on Knockback. I want to brag, please, if that's okay, please, with your permission.
1: Yeah, I absolutely, I'll, I'll allow that. Thank you. Here's how my morning
0: went. Just what a, this, is, this is pretty phenomenal, even by continuously phenomenal Dagan standards, right? Lilia has dance in the morning on Saturday. She has like six or seven dance classes throughout the week. Very committed dancer. I think I've spoken to that on the show before, including the Saturday morning dance class, which is, let's be honest, kind of a damper. On a Saturday morning. She has to be yeah. there at 10, 15. we got to give ourselves 20 minutes to get there. But she's, you know, she's, give her credit. Give this kid props. She's 14. She's very committed to her dance. This is one of her competition teams. So this is like an extra special class during the week. So I try to make that hour that she's going to be in there as productive as possible. So oftentimes, lately on Saturday morning, I'll go food shopping after I drop her off. But I'm on the clock. You know, I have an hour to get done. So drop her off today get there a minute early so i'm pulling into the parking lot at 10 14 quick drop off shoot out to the food store which is like you know like a mile and a half away say roads are super congested parking lot of the supermarket is super crowded is a giant crazy mornings right in the burbs is get it giant? There, giant 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 food yep. stores yeah i don't usually go to this giant but since it's close to dance it works out on a saturday morning if I'm in an extra productive mood, there's times I just sit there and just research for the show or something like that or draw. But today I felt like a little extra energetic. Get over there, $250 food shopping, not, a, you know, f- full cart, including actually, usually it's kind of easy. It's kind of, I kind of cheat. I know exactly what I need. I'm always taking inventory during the week. So I get in there, no list. I know my, my regular haunts, oh, right? wow. Yeah. Aisles. Okay. Sure. But Today it was tricky because Helene was like, "I'm going to make chili, so you got to get all the chili ingredients." So we had that on top of everything else. Fill the cart. It's like, you know, over the top of the cart. Big food shopping. Make a battlefield decision not to do self checkout, right? It's too. I have to go to the one to lo- find the line, find the, the 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 cashier that looks like they're up to the task. You know what I mean? That's always a hard thing to vet somebody just by eye. But I, teenage teenage boy, not always the best choice. But this kid looked responsible. Okay get to him, get done, dude, I'm pulling back in the dance parking lot. Now in the the interim, I'm I'm panicking a little bit. Like Lil, I'm going to be a little late, you know, which I warned her about that I might be, but I wasn't. Pulling back in the dance parking lot at 1114, exactly an hour after I pulled into that parking lot. I mean that there are very few men, women, or children that could have pulled that task off. I feel like I'm just now, this is kind of maybe in the genes because we've talked about dad in the food store. He's an absolute maniac. <laughs> he will actually make physical contact with old women and stuff like that. He's shooting down. I'm not like that. I, I, I'm i more polite. You know, I don't want to get... I, I'm very mindful about not getting in people's way, stuff like that. But I think it was handed down from dad, like that food shopping prowess. Like, mm-hmm. um, yeah, man. I just, you know, I feel like mm-hmm. I get back home, have a cup of coffee, do a little research for the show. We're... Here one o'clock on a Saturday, you and I a little after that. I feel like my day is done. After this podcast, I'm just going to kick my feet up. They're not going to let me do that, but I I would love to kick my feet up and just you know have a stogie, right? You know, Helene's like, "What are you going to do later today?" So what am I going to do? I'm going to go. I'm going to go hit the 18. I'm going to on the back nine. I'm going to have a cigar. What am I going to do? I'm going to I'm going to take care
1: of it. What do I always do? Right, right, yeah. Go hit the back. The back nine,
0: <laughs> with a Stogie and you with know Larry stog- and all my all the boys, you know with the then boys. I mean, I'll get the uh, Maserati detailed. What am I going to do?
1: I'm and you you come iron. out of the car and they say and they say, "Uh oh, here comes trouble." And you look at them and you say, <laughs> "Who let
0: this guy out of the house?" <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I feel yeah. like. This is a weird aside. Before we get to your day, I'm very selfishly monopolizing the conversation. I mean, there's right nothing now, to really say, so you go like on. This is one. This is one of. I don't think I've ever said this to you before. This is one of my great laments about not being there down there with you, Derek, Uncle Mike. I feel like we'd be a pretty cool golf foursome. Oh, golf that's
1: foursome. a foursome right there. I'll say. You know yeah, what I mean? A, like I feel be a, like
0: that would be even if we did it monthly, like a weekly. I mean, God, that would yeah. be amazing. Even if we did that monthly, I feel like that would be a proper thing to look forward to every week. I don't really have that here. You know, my friends don't live. I don't have any close friends in the area, really. So, or, you know, even like my colleagues, they don't live here. They're all in Brooklyn. You know what I mean? I work in New York. So, yeah, that's one thing. I I do talk to Uncle Mike about that sometimes. I'm like, I, I wish I was down there because you and I, you would teach me the game and we could have an excuse to hang out regularly. You know what I mean? But you know, now I'm thinking, you and Derek are down there. Why not do that? I'll be a little yeah. Jealous. We we talk
1: about it. I well, because Uncle Mike and I both live in the same. It's like a pretty big complex of neighborhoods. But you're close, and yeah, well, yeah, we're a mile the away three. from each other. We're close. But but uh, and then yeah, we're another cup co- probably couple miles from Derek. But I say that only because in the middle of like all of our neighborhoods is a huge golf course that we're all. I think
0: that's right. I think we,
1: I think we might be members of as far as our because part you of our live HOA there. or something. Yeah, sure. So um. No, I, I agree, and Uncle Mike and I have talked about that in the past too. I like golfing. I'm bad at it. The thing that stresses me out about it is just having to I hate having people behind me playing a game, right? Like yes like mini if golf there's a, see, of, right right. like it's it could be I imagine it's it's not pleasant like you have to let people play through or whatever. Like I want to go at a time and in a place where I know that like yeah i'm I'm not playing. It's going to take me 10 strokes to get this ball into this hole Mm. in this hole on a par five. Okay, you Mm. have to understand that, like, I'm not going I'm going to be playing so badly. Yeah, that it's going to take time. And I I, I want to know that that's not going to be a problem because I know it probably will be. And that's fine, because I would understand why that would be a problem. And therefore, it kind of precludes me from because I used to go golf sometimes on Long Island. I've talked about how my friend cody's dad was a lefty so it was perfect because i could use someone's left-handed clubs because no one's left-handed like it it's so annoying for some reason we find lefties all the time in baseball but they're so or that's so rare much rarer and, i actually and, think i think cory i think whatever that mcelroy guy's lefty but
0: okay oh is he really but it's
1: but it's pretty rare and so to, that was kind of like a way into you know um for me but yeah i have to uh i have to think about that because i've thought a few like when i moved here alley had brought up before covid like it would be fun to even join like an adult kickball league or something like oh that oh
0: my god that'd be amazing
1: even making and i've thought about it like if we just have we we kind of almost do have enough people around here where you could enter one of these leagues as a team which i think oh, would be even yeah. more shit. cool you know? could you do that i oh i would imagine so because wow. i imagine it's a you know there's probably these you know pay for leagues right with 10 teams and it's like okay and they and people join and then they get paired up and it's like okay we're joining as a unit of 10 or 12 people will just be a team you know dude that's Um, sick
0: and then you get a sponsor Vito's pizza whatever you know yeah
1: it'd be awesome you know like that would be super cool play softball or kickball or something like that i like the idea of an adult like kickball
0: league i think that's that's uh, i never even heard of that that's like a wonderful idea but you know you could do I, i know what you're saying but you know get on a program like if you guys get committed like yeah you're gonna have to go through that process of getting good enough to feel comfortable but like Helene grew up on a really nice, where her parents still live, really nice public course, hit that on the weekday, get on a program where you go to the driving range once a week. You know what I mean? Like, really, if I was down there, you guys would be in trouble because I think I would be, you know, I know you guys are all about your fantasy football and you have your little things, but something where we could get together, you know, weekly, bi-weekly, have a cigar, you know what I mean? Go out to eat after, make it a thing. That'd be fun.
1: Well, come on, come on down. We're all down here. I mean, everyone, (laughs) everyone's waiting for you, but- Yeah, it would be it would be a nice thing. But here's the other thing that I have to admit is that I don't want to ultimately so many things sound like a good idea until I have to do them. So I like that's just that's just the reality of Colin, right? Where. I'm one of those people, not so much with family because I don't really care. I just don't I don't even bother making friends. In fact, Mike and I were having having a, a conversation the other day where I'm like, the reality is, is I have a few people in my life that I'm not related to that I really love and that I'm close with. Yeah. And that is plenty. Like I don't even feel like I sufficiently keep up with the Ramones, the Eric Castros, the Mike Popes, anywhere sufficiently enough for me to add and I really love those people. Right. For me course. to add on some schlub that I've just met. You know what I mean? Like no offense. Yeah. But it's like yeah. I don't have the time or the and, and so I was telling Micah, like, some I people lament their lack of social life. I need friends. And I'm like, I don't want any friends. I don't need any more <laughs> friends. Right. Like that's the last I need a friend like I need a hole in the head. <laughs> what I need is uh, time
0: time, is, you know, is, is, to dedicate
1: to points. the people that I already love yeah. and to the tasks that I already want to accomplish and I the like, things I, I want to do. Understand, dude. So okay. I really do try to be realistic about that because I know it's turned into a meme where people are like waiting for each other to cancel plans like at the last minute and like who will do it first. and And it's like I get that. <laughs> so I don't even put myself in those situations anymore, although I'll say the other side of it, which is. Okay. Especially when I lived in San Francisco and, you know, I still had friends, which was when I would get out and, it'd be like, you know, Greg or someone would be like, let's go, let's go to the bar. Let's go. And I 10 minutes out, I'd be like, all right, then I'd be fucking drunk and totally fine and having a great time. Having a great time. So I never I also must admit that the adage that I never regret going to what I'm doing or doing okay. what I'm doing is also true. So. It's a little bit of like six of one half dozen of the other as far as I'm concerned.
0: I get it. But I, get but I
1: really am of the mind where like, oh, I meet new people and stuff. I don't fucking meet new people. Are you kidding me? <laughs> that sounds like the most that sounds like the worst thing ever. Right. To How do meet I build this people. into
0: my already congested infrastructure? Yeah, like, I'll meet I mean? new people. Yeah,
1: I'll meet new people. Great. <laughs> Thanks. Anyway, <gasps> sounds like you sounds like you had a good uh, Saturday. I'm
0: very productive uh, actually, already.
1: Dad's here. <laughs> So He's there. Now, what? Dig? I got to call you out on the carpet here.
0: Okay, please. You got to call don't your dad. Actually. You got to right, call go your dad. Go you got to call your dad. I do. You know? I, I'm like two days past having supposedly having to call him. I didn't know he was going to be down in Virginia, though. That kind of makes it. Well, it doesn't really change anything, does it? It's got a cell phone. really doesn't
1: mean anything at all. But, <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. But, you know, it's so interesting because we're a big enough family where we unintentionally triangulate because someone has already talked to someone else. Right. So. And and so it's like everyone. I mean, in my experience forever, it's always been like one of the first things anyone asks someone is how someone else is. Right. Like, yeah, you're here. How is this other person? Right. Like, that's always the way it is. And everyone always asks me. How is Dagan? Right. (laughs) And I'm like, he's fine. Yeah, because we talk all the time. Right. We talk. And he's like, have you talked to Dagan? And I'm like, you know, I've talked to Dagan. (laughs) And, the, and people are like, I'm waiting for Dagan to still tell me he has a job at Nickelodeon or
0: <laughs> I did on the show.
1: You know, like sadly, your best friend, uh, PJ, who we love very much, his father has passed away. You're, yeah. You have to go to Long Island for that
0: tomorrow shortly. Yeah.
1: And um, but even then, that was like a thing like people were discovering from each other. And so the triangulation all points in one direction right now, Dagan.
0: Yeah, I understand. I did text. <laughs> I, you know, it's also problematic about that. Like I texted you, Ally and dad about mr williams passing but i didn't i didn't think to even tell mom and dana because they're a little less they're a little more removed from that scenario like you were really good friends with pj so it was Ali. dana and mom were a little bit further from that and dad you know dad's always been instrumental in that whole equation too but really i should have just, just texted everybody it didn't really make sense you know so yeah and then there's like you know, I don't want P- – they, they haven't expressed this. They and their mom haven't expressed this to me. They're both gener- generally really cool. But, you know, the, I don't want anyone to get butt hurt that I left them out of the text, not thinking, just irresponsible, you know, type of thing. Yeah, life gets too busy, dude. I'm very bad at juggling the social thing, let alone with, like, friends that I miss, like PJ. Right, exactly. Like, my friend Colin, like, people that are dear to me that I just don't get to talk to and and think you know think about like i was talking to my friend jeff that i grew up with on long island he's out in marin out in san francisco area and you know like i haven't talked to him in 10 years and we're just kind of like tech, messaging each other on linkedin <laughs> it's pathetic dude like i have to get bet i have to find a way to build it in and you know what the thing is too like aunt Joni always says it's like she leaves me this caveat where it's like listen dude just like call me for three minutes and say like I don't have that much time. Work is really crazy. I'm juggling. I got to go food shopping, make dinner, whatever it is. But like, just tell me like, what's up? Like, just check in, you know? And that's a really good system to do. But I think it's much like you going out on the town for the night. Like once you get out there, then you're enjoying just hearing that person's voice. And then you you don't want to get off the phone after three or five minutes. So the discipline to actually just have the five minute conversation, that's what's going to be really key for me. I just got to get the ball rolling you know so i don't know wish me luck <laughs> yeah no it's it.
1: <laughs> no i understand i mean that's what i'm admitting basically is that i'm just past that point right where unfortunately there's just i appreciate when i people reach out to me like random people from my past friends cuz i'm a, i'm somewhat of a name people encounter my name sometimes wherever I and mean, i and sometimes i just hear from people and it's like i have to in my mind Have a sort of card catalog of where people are. Like I just, it it, things are kind of just the way they are now. I'm 37. I'm not going to have a new best friend. Ramon's my best friend. That's just the way it is. Like when Ramon was here, you don't think it could happen? No, I I I I think think it's I think it's probably impossible. I mean, I've encountered people in my past. Like my my good friend Nate in San Francisco. He was like my my really good friend in San Francisco. Right? Ramon was my really good friend in Boston. Mike was my really good friend in Long Island, and and my experience. There's like one person in each of these places, okay, okay. that you really can take with you, you know. Yeah, it's like I, I feel because I've I've always in some way been jealous of people with these big circles, and I've I've, I've lamented many times that I've never felt like I've really belonged to something. But at the same time, I look at some of this stuff and I'm like, how does anyone adequately? It, this all must be very surface level, and if it is, then what's even the point? And that's kind of my honest, maybe too candid take where there's some people. <laughs> That I've I, I care about that I think are great, but it's like you have to understand we don't we don't have the time, the discipline, the wherewithal to do this. Right, yeah. yep. a person that creeps into my life is like it's you've you've gone over some hurdles, like you definitely.
0: I hear that. I you know? I def that definitely speaks to me in a lot of ways for sure. I can relate. Uh,
1: I'm also a workaholic, right? You are, and I know you are too. And so that. I've gotten a lot better about that. I'm not as bad as I used to be. You you got more bad. But it's still now. it's still bad. No, it, so. it
0: is. And you value your sort of alone time. You know what I mean? You really value that time just to yourself to unwind, to decompress. And me too. And I think that's another thing into the equation. It's like the, we we we'd rather do that. There's a there's this maybe even a 60-40, who knows? Maybe even 90-10 ratio where it's like you you'd rather do that than Um, engage in the social stuff
1: you know so definitely definitely also I'll say that and 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 talking about you know the tier in which people kind of come in I said dad's here this weekend dad our nephew Declan turned 16 so dad came down here for his birthday yeah and we're all getting together for that and it's gonna be great it's a it's a big occasion that's why he's here but he just this is this goes in the other direction because he's one of the people where like he called me on Wednesday and was like I'm gonna come down can I stay with you for two days now there's the amount of people that can do that to me are I, you can count them on one hand. Yeah. The amount of people that I would let that like, let do that. Yeah. Like and but he happened to be one of those people where I, like, he was like, really, really was like, I'm sorry. You know, I'm like, that's really not a problem. You know, right. that's not. A, but I couldn't imagine like someone pulling that shit on me. You know, that wasn't in that circle.
0: He's one. Yeah. He's in yeah. that very, very. Uh, yeah. Very. Uh, what do you call it? Yeah, yeah, closely very, held it. Yeah, yeah it's, closely a, it's an intimate held. circle exclusive
1: so. exclusive sure it's
0: got exclusive me- member privileges you know type of thing get him in get him in there where is he where is the man
1: i don't know he uh he well got i woke wrong. up you know he's gone when i woke up so oh, I have he's, no, he's somewhere you know he's out and about <laughs> he's on the prowl <laughs> is
0: we'll he with nancy or is he by himself
1: no no he's by himself
0: by himself okay
1: dad comes here and just kind of floats about does whatever he needs to do he, he brought a lot of bagels which i appreciate
0: night, man he, oh did he oh that's yeah That was, you know, he
1: always does. Yeah, he loves doing his thing. He loves his mystery. He loves his intrigue. He loves it.
0: Easy pass wrapped in foil. We won't go there right now.
1: Yeah, we don't have to do that. (laughs) Get him on the show at some point again.
0: Absolutely.
1: Dig. Kill Bill Volume 2. Here we go. It's time. 2004. The second half of the Kill Bill saga. We just did in the order that we were recording. I think we'll probably put them up in order too, but... Kill Bill volume one so I would encourage you of course to go listen to that first watch that first and we'll move into volume two here presently I'm curious um what you make of this film I I had never seen this one so as I said in the previous in the previous episode I saw Kill Bill volume one but I don't really remember very much of it but I positively never saw this movie the Kill Bill volume two there's just no way I saw this and um so I didn't really know what to expect and I was quite pleasantly surprised actually and we have a letter here from Hadari Shatoro on Patreon. Remember, of course, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com laststandmedia for early ad-free access to every episode of our show. The ability to submit questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas to our show, vote on topic ideas, submit topic ideas, et cetera, in, et, cetera, et cetera, et cetera, Do et cetera, et cetera. So, us. yes. So we put up a thread for this. I got to be honest. You know, every once in a while, I have to bring people to task. The volume one thread left a little bit to be desired. That's why you guys weren't included. <laughs> you guys volume got two betting. thread, a little bit better. Well, not a little bit. Actually, substantially better. So okay. we have so we have better inquiries here
0: interesting.
1: interesting you know i don't want to have to discipline you guys like this
0: well so let's really it.
1: keep it let's keep it focused and keep it solid let's keep it pithy Qu- <laughs> quality driven right right of course always uh but thank you so much for your kindness and support over on patreon couldn't do it without you and of course uh for merch if you're interested all right dig let's go to hadari shatoro he says hey, hey there compact disc How did you feel about the tonal shift between the two films going from an Eastern-inspired action flick to a more traditional Western? I have a friend of mine who didn't care for part one but was all over part two because of the change in feel. I personally adore both equally. Keep on punching that coffin. So, I must say, I like this volume two better than volume one myself.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: And I'm surprised in some way that they were one movie. I know that they probably had to edit things just so, and obviously wrap things up and then restart them and all of that so it's not going to be quite this linear path that maybe they had originally envisioned but these movies do feel very distinct and I wonder if it was a four-hour gods and generals type film you know or Braveheart or whatever would it or Lord of the Rings like one of these movies that just takes forever would it have really been worth sitting there for four hours am I qu- the the answer is I don't really know because it they just don't even seem like they 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 obviously belong together, but they don't seem like they're the same. And, yeah. And I was I was really smitten by that. In fact, I wrote in my notes, there's no violence at all for 26 minutes of any consequence. Like and I would argue and I, I said this to Micah, I was like, the movie's obviously rated R and it would be rated R. But if you removed like 30 seconds of this movie, it's probably wouldn't even be rated R. You know, like it's not that bad. And. That's neither here nor there because I'm not, I don't um, cringe at blood and all that. I don't care about any of that. But I don't really feel like violence is the be all end all either of storytelling. And to see Tarantino more readily flex the other side of his creative muscle, I think was welcome. So I personally like the change in feel. And as I've said many times, like action scenes are cool, but my mind kind of spaces out after a while and it becomes just a black screen with brackets and it says action on it. (laughs) You know, and I I feel like there's no room for that in this. So there was no point in, in like as for as cool as the rest, like the Blue Lotus or whatever restaurant fight scene was in the first one. Right. It was kind of like, all right. All right. Like when more guys show up, I'm like, I get it. I get it. I get it. This isn't I'm not playing a video game. So this isn't really that interesting to me.
0: Right. You're just but, watching. You're not interacting. Right.
1: But here it's like I feel like it's much deeper and much. And, and some of these characters like Bud are really interesting and like intrigue me a great deal. So. I'm curious, based on Hadari's inquiry, thank you for writing in, what what did you make of Kill Bill Volume 2, and, and specifically about the difference in maybe tone and tenor of the two?
0: Yeah, I mean, I like that they're different. You're making me think about action in general, Kyle, when it comes to movies, you know, film and TV, also because it's true, like, action is really tough because what hasn't been done? Like, you really have to come with something special, a stylized treatment, a certain tone, you know, something in the offing to make it stand out from everything else. Like I think of John Wick, like they did some, there's just some, there's a magic in that, even though action has been on the, on the screen for a hundred years, you know? So that is tough. I do like that. The two volumes are different. I mean, first of all, going back to 2004, right. It occurred to me this morning, like I was still in my twenties when this movie came out and you were just, you were in your teens, like just old enough to serve in our country's military. Like this is a, this movie's going on 20 years old. That's insane. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I love that they're different. Yeah, I always thought of this. First of all, I'm extra excited to talk about it with you, this volume, because you haven't seen it yet. So I really wanted to get your take. I thought that would be fun. And I hadn't seen it in a while. I have these two movies on DVD and I can't find them, which makes me realize I have like a... Bi- I must have a big Rubbermaid bin that got lost in translation somewhere when we moved here 10 years ago that I still that I still have to unearth and see what's in there. But... Yeah, I always thought of this one as I love this movie, but I always thought of it as the slightly more story driven, maybe a little more cerebral, obviously a little less action packed, more talk and dialogue and exposition driven, you know, chapter or, you know, volume of this story. You know, um less fighting and a little more story and a little more thriller, I would say. A little more Straight up action and a little more thriller type scenario. A lot of uncomfortable stuff in this film to watch. And, um, you know, a few fighting things, a few set piece things, but it's not really about the action this time. And I wonder, like, it is interesting to think about. I read about it's so weird to talk about Harvey Weinstein now, but, you know, he was obviously behind, you know, Miramax and behind this movie and a big, uh, you know, played a big part in this. But I read something that was interesting. Not surprising, but interesting that he was always up filmmakers' asses. It's probably not the best. <laughs> no. Oh! No, it's not. <laughs> oh, it's. Not. <laughs> All right. Look, my choice of words is a little suspect there, but he was always really pushing the agenda of breaking things into two halves because, like, l- making things shorter, which does speak to a movie executive just in terms of making more money and profit, right? Like, Quentin. Super important filmmaker, box office draw. Like you got this four hour thing. You And, you know, apparently Tarantino and his camp were pushing to make this like a, like you had said, a Lord of the Rings type epic one piece thing that went into theaters. But Weinstein was like, no, we need to break it into two. And that does make sense in terms of like something good that is going to, you know, you're going to make more profit off it of if you do that. It's very simple. You don't have to be like Albert Einstein to to realize that. But I do wonder how it came off once that mandate was passed down. Like, was it intentional for the two halves to feel so different? But I do, I, I like that they feel like they stand on their own that way. Obviously, it's one cohesive story, but they, they feel like different films in a lot of ways. And I think it's Tarantino flexing, like, his send-up action, kung fu, like, how he does really um, energetic and kinetic stuff in chapter one, and then he's flexing his other set of muscles in two with his writing, with his memorable dialogue, and with character, you know, which he's really good at, too. So I feel like it's almost like an action set piece for one, and then Tarantino's other thing that he does, which is very Pulp Fiction-esque, where it's like just memorable scenarios and story and character and, and dialogue. You know, is a really important part of this volume, too, I think.
1: It's, I think, essential, if anything, because... I agree with you. It's it's like yin and yang, I think these two movies are are really fascinating as as one, of course, but it reinforces as well what I had kind of reiterated this feeling I've been de- have, I've been developing as an adult with Tarantino where I'm becoming quite the fanboy of this person, right? Where I don't really know my, very much about him. I have not seen him. I I'm not I don't get into shit like that often where it's like I'm going down the rabbit hole of people like Christopher Nolan is another example who I absolutely am obsessed with and I don't even I don't know much about him because I'm just like, I just know this man speaks to me with his films and every time he releases something, I want to see it at some point. That's
0: really smart. I like that approach.
1: And I think, I mean, it's not out of anything. I'm kind of that way with games too where I don't need to know too much. Like, I I really want to focus on the product itself. That's what's interesting to me. And I've really begun to be like, holy sh... As I said last time, Jesus Christ, this, this guy is really onto something. And I really like how this movie... Kill Bill Volume One really—it's so weird. Like it, it's such a strange movie. I, I, I imagine, imagine that movie kind of just existed on its own. It could, if it, they just removed Volume One and it was just Kill Bill and it was just a weird story and it was un, unresolved. Lots of stories are told like that. But I do love how he f- he—you're curious. Like, what is this all about? What is what is this even all about? You know, at the end of the movie, the end of the first movie, you have no idea what what is even going on. And I love how he wastes no time in the second film, getting right into explaining things and and i think so immediately it changes just like that we go to the two pines wedding chapel the massacre at two pines as they refer to it el paso texas and it's the mystery at the the center of the story and i like how it's just there's no more bullshit now we're gonna now we're gonna get into exactly what happened here and there's a lot of cool stuff i like samuel l jackson's cameo here which is you know charming how crazy is that He's smoking I, I noticed multiple times. I don't know if it's a if it's intentional or if it's a, a product placement, but they're all smoking American Eagle cigarettes. I don't know if you noticed that.
0: No, I don't think I like, did.
1: You know the only reason I know that is because our dad used to smoke them and they're stamped with that eagle logo on the side, like that very faint eagle logo, and you see them smoke, so smoking that all over and over again, including Samuel L. Jackson. But there's this amazing line when the bride, Beatrix, and Bill meet each other. And she says, how did you find me? And he says, I'm the man. I'm the man. I love that line. Like, that's, a, that's an amazing <gasps> line. So what do you make of this intro and in our introduction to Bill, David Carradine? I
0: mean, oh, David Carradine, dude. He's so good. You know, I was introduced to him in the early 90s. Um, maybe it was 92 When the TV show came on, uh, Kung Fu, The Legend Continues. Yes, of course. And Dad and I bonded over that show because he's the one, I I got into it, I thought it was a very campy, you know, you have uh, Kwai Chang Kane, this, you know, I guess he's like a Shaolin monk type. And then he's got, I think that the show went that like it was his grown son and his son was a cop and they were kind of like, they fought crime together basically, Right. right? It was awesome. A dad is the one who's like, no, dude, like, this is an old, this is a spin off of an, or a continuation of an old series that also, of course, started a younger David Carradine called Kung Fu. And then he's the one who taught me, like, no, this is a remake of something that already existed and then went back to discover Kung Fu and then got into The Legend Continues with that. And it was campy and kind of cheap. And it seemed like it was always like a low budge type production. But like, for some reason, we just dug it. That was my intro- introduction to David Carradine. And of course, for Kill Bill, it felt like, you know, a very John Travolta-esque turn that Tarantino did so well, right? Like where he takes an actor or an actress in obscurity and reintroduces them to everybody and makes them a household name all over again. And it felt like that with David Carradine. And of course, like, of course, they're channeling that old martial arts entertainment heritage with Carradine, but he's got something different. You know what I mean? He's got a real charisma, this guy. He's got a charm. And you could see, like... He's almost like to us what he is to the bride, to Beatrix. Like he's like the guy, like the father figure, the mentor. You love that voice, you know, that crackle. And like you just like he tells the story of Pi May, for instance. Like, wow, I could listen to this guy tell a story about anything. He's just got that intonation. He's just got that warmth. And he feels like your dad or someone to look up to, you know. And I think I read I was really into like a bi- I went through a real biography stage in the in the aughts, where I read like everybody's biography. It didn't matter, politician, sports figure, artist, actor, filmmaker, whatever. Like I just devoured biographies, and I read something. I don't know if it was authorized or unauthorized. I read a David Carradine one. He was a really interesting dude. He w- he's he was really a family man. Of course, there's a lot of controversy behind his death. Maybe we'll get to that. But he was a really interesting guy. It seemed like a lot of him was like in his on-screen personas as well. Like he carried through a lot of himself into these parts. And I, he's a big, he's a big part of this story in Volume Two. And I, you know, we, we'll we'll talk about him at length, I'm sure. But you know, this opening with the chapel, with the massacre in El Paso, meeting Bill for the first time, it's just iconic. You know, it's like there's a lot of iconic stuff from the first uh, volume that we talked about, but this one. There's so much to say but also like what I think about instantaneously even before going in and watching again is that you know famous truck out slow truck out of you know of the actual massacre taking place and the fact that like we talk about violence and Tarantino not shying away from like showing on screen violence and gore and not being afraid to go there and make us uncomfortable and make us squirm and cringe and everything like that but I this one always surprised me because he's also not afraid to show that, you know, like just to show and not tell. And this is an off screen violence. Like you don't see the massacre go down, you know, it pulls out from the, and you're seeing it and hearing it from the exterior of this church building of this chapel. And it makes you realize he is a really skillful filmmaker. He's not just about the exploitation. He could do other things too. He does a little bit of everything. And, uh, I wondered too, like with Kill Bill Volume One, like did you wonder where Sam Jackson was because he's like, you know, the De Niro to Tarant to Scorsese, right? He's the guy like you expect to to pop up in every Tarantino joint. So there was no way we were getting out of the story without seeing him pop up as the. It's as the
1: it's cool too because yeah, as like the pianist or whatever. It's cool because I guess the only way you would infer that is in the first one. They're like, you know, they even killed the. I think they say the colored colored piano player or something like that <laughs> right and, and maybe like an astute tarantino fan would be like that is maybe a hint that he'll be in it at some point and i'm not saying because he's the only black man but of That's course he's the most iconic black man to, uh, associated oh, with i mean with this by far so sam
0: jack i mean mace windu man i mean the, the yeah. other thing is i love Pim about Saber. the character that he's yeah. like it takes a very tarantino term where he's like you know, I was a four top. I was like part of the gang, like cool in the gang. Like he says, he like any, like he would, what do you call that? A beat musician? Not a beat musician. What do you call A
1: session that? musician or a- Yeah, uh, like he would, yeah.
0: when the guys would come to town, he'd be like, he'd be doing pickup like keyboards or bass when they performed or whatever. As long as they came through Texas, he was part of that. Like I, I even wonder, like, was that a Sam Jackson note that he put in there? It seems like very cool and uh, like a very Sam Jackson-ish thing to put in there like the purple lightsaber right like right, oh right. no we can make this character even cooler you know
1: <laughs> make it more iconic if you if i'm the only man with a purple lightsaber for some reason and yeah it, it is you could imagine i i would imagine tarantino is very exacting so this probably doesn't happen but you could imagine a relationship occurring with an actor like that where he's like i'll let me just do my thing here it's a it's a cameo it's like one scene right like yeah i'll read you get the paid script enormous like,
0: sums of money right just and we'll to show like, your make face. this.
1: We'll make this happen, like in a in a way that is best for the film. Because you have to wonder, like when an actor works with a creator over and over again, they start to maybe understand even better what works for the films than in some way than the, the writer and director. I'd be interested to know more about those relationships. How those if if it's an active or a passive relationship, right? Yeah,
0: that's true. Like that because they must go to each ch- be shared,
1: you know, right? Because they must go to each other for a reason. It's not like Samuel L. Jackson doesn't have a. He, you know, he's working with like a dearth of people to work with. He can do whatever he wants. Whatever so like the wants, fact yeah. that they're attracted to each other, there must be some sort of synergistic Great reason. Point. But so we learn, I like Uma Thurman in, in these scenes because again, it reminds me of the scene in Okinawa in the first one where you see her in a more bubbly and she's, she, they go into it. It's like, she's playing a different character. She's playing someone else. It's not her. That's not naturally her. And I like how Bill gets into that later, but, Again, shows her range. Like, it's almost unsettling how normal the scene is because the only, you only see the Two Pines Chapel in the first one with all the bodies and the death and the stories and the scene they show over and over again of him shooting her in the head. And, but, but it actually qu- starts out quite normal. And, um, I enjoyed that. I, I liked the idea of the dress rehearsal. I thought it was cute to say, like, why are you wearing, because it answers some questions. It's like, why are you wearing a wedding dress? I thought that, too, when they were like, oh, we're rehearsing. I was like, why the fuck is she wearing a wedding dress? Right. And I like how they like leave no stone unturned, which, of course, is is clever, is clever. But I also thought it was a little weird when Bill shows up. They're like practically like making out, you know, it's like a little a little strange. And he's her dad. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's what I'm saying. So it's like it's a little it's a little weird. But nonetheless, shows the range. What did you think of Uma Thurman as the film got going, and we got it's to see a great her back? Point in her... man to
0: start with that with her, yeah. because it really shows her acting chops. We see her action chops in Volume One. We see and uh, that that whole thing where she swings into Okinawa and she's playing the gaijin and she's like, you know, playing like the ditzy blonde American tourist thing. Like, and now you see real Uma Thurman. You know what I love about this scene, man? It's really ca- it's great character building stuff. We see Bill show up on the scene, and he says to her like. I'm not here because like, I'm stalking you like I was stalking your... Who, I thought you were dead, and I'm stalking your killers to get you know, to exact vengeance. Like, I was looking for the people that supposedly killed you. Then when I get on the scene and I get close, I find out you're very much alive. Not only that, but you got a bun in the oven, and you're getting married to some other dude. So he's not happy. And I love when, he first, when she first hears him playing the flute outside. She already knows it's him without seeing. And there's fear there, dude. She's like, what? She knows who Bill is. You know, Bill is a father figure. He's a lover, but he's also obviously a dangerous guy, obviously. And she's seen what he's capable of. They have a history together. This movie goes into that. And she's afraid at first because she doesn't know what he's he's there for. And I love that they build that thing of like almost like a parent and a child, like, Am I, here, am I here to get like a hug or am I here to get disciplined? And you see that fear in her face, man. It's awesome acting. Very, a lot of subtlety and nuance with that. And then you're really, wa- you're really on tinterhooks because you're really trying to see what he's about. And the more he says, you're hoping that he's there in good faith and he's there to support her, not, you know, you don't know if he's there. To, you, you have no idea. You just know his reputation at this point. So it's, a really, it's really unsettling and it's funny that it's really just a dialogue scene in broad daylight, you know, out in the desert. It seems kind of very unthreatening on its surface in a film that goes into a lot of unsettling stuff and anxiety and tension that it starts with this, just this conversation. And it almost has that same level of tension as being buried alive, as being, you know, as this fight in the trailer, you know, all this other stuff. And it starts with this very innocuous seemingly very innocuous but there's a lot of tension there. And you know just really this is what Tarantino's about like just that character building just through dialogue just seeing the characters converse it's beautiful beautifully done.
1: And I must say I mean we we obviously brought up David Carradine already but he's good. Right? Like he's really good yeah in this role like i don't know because i was i liked kung fu as well alleged continues i never saw the original one from the 70s but i i agree with you it was just sheer camp sheer mid-90s camp and i never really took it very seriously i thought it was fun to watch but i I could i wasn't thinking about him as a serious person and and when i realized in the first movie because you kind of hear him or whatever a few times and stuff and i'm like that's fucking david carradine i don't think i have even, even really realize and it's always eager to see how it would play out and you know what the flute thing reminded me of was proto man for some reason like oh. this like this almost sonic announcement that you're like there somewhere right and uh
0: did i ever tell you that lilia is afraid of that proto man whistling we're talking about proto man from Mega Man.
1: no i didn't know <laughs> she's awesome. like
0: that tune like for some reason like freaks her out you know that sting that whistling sting yeah. thing that he does yeah i wonder it's, what it's she would think of thing.
1: You probably don't remember this, but in Mega Man 5, the the fake bad guy is like a is proto man, but it's like a fake proto man. Oh, I don't know if if you remember. It's it's really unsettling because when he appears, you know, he's fake because he has like a whistle that is slightly different. And I wonder what she would think of that. That's like a really sinister sounding proto man. whistle. Oh, that even worse. Yeah. Like, and you know that that they're like not the same. So (laughs) which I think is kind of neat. My kids are strange. Oh, yeah. Aren't they all? Kids are just strange. Generally kids are
0: strange. That's true. That's true.
1: I like the the line where Uma or Beatrix, the bride is is explaining who her her new husband or her her man is. And, you know, it's cool. Like she works in a music shop and she's going into that. And he said and she says he's fond of music. And he says, aren't we all? (laughs) And that's another really great line because we talk about that a lot about how weird it is when people are like, I don't I don't like you you meet one. A person every so often that doesn't care about or listen to music. I find that so weird. I find that so impossibly weird. And I like that that line kind of acknowledged that as well. Now, I wanted to ask about a character that we hear a bit, a bit about, but get to know much better. And it's uh, Bud, one of the assassins I wait to talk about, Bud. Timothy Martin wrote in and said, hey, guys, do you ever feel kind of bad for Bud? Seems like he very clearly ended up with the short end of the stick in the whole international assassin game. He also has by far the least glorious death. He's the only man Bill ever loved. So Bud is Bill's brother. And I really like this character a lot. And uh, Michael Madsen, of course, you know, the amazing.
0: He's an icon.
1: And I feel like you're always expecting it to go off. Like you understand the capabilities of this man. In fact, because he has a sword and and the bride says in the first one, like everyone, because when she's fighting Vivica Fox, and they're talking about fighting with blades and all this. It seems like everyone kind of has their own weapon of choice. Very comic book-esque or comic book-esque, certainly kung fu movie-esque. And you know that his weapon of choice is a sword. He has a Hanzo sword. Bill asks him if he's been keeping up with this sword play. He kind of just scoffs at him. He's clearly not, you know. <laughs> but you keep wondering if this is going to go off. Like at some point you're going to see that. And I kept watching being like, are they going to go off? Like, is this going to is this going to happen? Is this going to happen? And I love the scene when she walks in and you just fucking shoots her. And very Indiana Jones-esque yes. scene, which we had talked about last time and fulfilled me watching one of and I don't know if we have ever gone into this. I think we have like my great fear in life is getting buried alive. It's what it's the. It's the reason why I insist on being cremated. Like I insist on oh, it. Oh, that's the re- okay. Yeah, I insist yeah, I absolutely insist you must incinerate me. Even if cuz then there'd be no no nothing left to chance. And watching it was very creepy as well. So there's a whole lot of doctor evil type let's just kill her already kind of shit going on in this movie for sure. I'll go to my room and get my gun and we'll kill her together kind of stuff. <laughs> you know, but at the same time we Scott spend all people. this time with Bud waiting for it to pop off and, and it never does. I really dig this character. He, in, t- out of the, all the assassins, he's the most intriguing to me because we still don't really understand like what role he played or like what he was capable of. We don't really, he takes like the easy way out and, you know, statistically like berries are alive. So what do you think of Bud?
0: Oh, dude. Can we talk about Michael Madsen for a minute? He, he, he's a guy who for me, like. He kind of like delivers the same performance every movie he's in. He's just got a different name and a different outfit. And there's like, there's a great camp to his acting style. And, you know, you think of like his his roles, his epic roles, like Mr. Blonde in Reservoir Dogs or Sonny Black in Donnie Brosco or Bud in Kill Bill. Like there's something to his acting style that's very like, very distinctive there's a camp to it but it's also fun and you know i love seeing him pop up because it's it's a really specific flavor i think about like i don't know maybe like he has like very similar to like a tom sizemore like if you think of tom sizemore's um performance in heat like they have this like cool guy like off the cuff gangstery like threatening but impervious to being threatened thing going on with that like comical and jovial a little bit like a very specific acting style that's very that's kind of a rare like a rare breed thing that like only those two dudes could deliver but i want to start by talking about what you mentioned like the fact of like this guy is part of the deadly uh viper assassination squad right and he's a hitman like the rest of these cats that you see that are very like athletic and martial arts driven and the sword play and everything and the fact that bill mentions he was like a swordsman and a martial artist himself he's like this hick living out in the desert in some trailer you know working at some two-bit titty bar where nobody ever goes as a bouncer like the worst like very big lebowski dude-esque like lazy they intimate that he's an alcoholic like just like rabid underachiever right First of all, I don't know whether to be angry or whether to be happy that we don't get to see Michael Matson doing, you know, sword play on screen. That would be a really weird look, but it's all, I'm almost mad at Tarantino for not doing it. Yeah. I wanted to see it. I wanted to you see it. You know what it. I mean? Like you yeah. need to, I need to see this. Right. Like this shit kicker dude, like fighting with a Hattori Hanzo sword. That's just as proficient as like an L or a Beatrix, you know, type of thing. But also, there's a great thing in his performance in this movie that I have to I have to put up there. It's it's brilliant. You know, he's got Bud's got this very like obviously he's this underachiever, right? He's like down on his luck. He's kind of like half resigned, lazy. Obviously, extremely lazy. And the other half of him is just like doesn't give a shit. Like he's just he he's just kind of phoning it in. Like he's over it. Like he's just you know life's got him down, and he's just fine. And you know the way he acts is amazing. Like he's just tossing things like you see the surroundings you see his environment right Everything's just tossed around like he's got a bucket of chicken on the counter that's been there for god knows how long like you know it's just a mess but he's also got this thing where he's just chucking things around like he's making frozen uh margaritas and he's just flipping the lid of the blender and throwing it against the wall and then he's pouring and he's half getting it in the glass like he doesn't give a shit like he's completely phoned it. he's just phoning it in like he's he's checked out already this guy you know, he throws the ladder in the back of the pickup truck. Like nothing's just gently placed. Like he's just, he's just over it. You know, there's a great consistency to his performance with that. That he just keeps doing shit like that. That's really comical if you watch. You know, when L finally arrives and he's making them the drinks. Like he's just, he, you could tell the guy's just fucking done. Like he's just, just put a fork in him. He's finished. You know what I mean? He's being mistreated by the, you know, his employer. Um, can we talk about that scene? For a second Sure With his boss Larry Sure First of all dude That guy Larry Played by Larry Bishop This is one of those Cool bits of research That's Joey Bishop's son That's the rat pack Joey Bishop's son In real life How crazy That's really interesting Yeah What What a great I don't know too much About Larry Bishop And he plays the part of Larry Obviously a character actor I looked at his filmography Like Did like Laverne and Shirley And Happy Days Like he's been around For a long time this is one of the great character actor performances. When he's sitting in that back room, he's got the shotgun next to him. He's got the hooker doing lines of cocaine, like the stripper doing lines of cocaine with him. Be somebody, he's, <laughs> dude. He said, "It's it a calendar time for that. Buddy." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like talking under his breath. Like he's, if you watch that performance again, he's repeat like he's half drugged out and he's half just angry. And he, you know, Buddy's there and he's picking on the hat and Bud's there and he's like. He's, he's repeating everything under his breath that Buddy's saying to him. He's like, there's nobody out there. <laughs> like, it's just like, it's a great 10-minute performance. Like, one of the great character actor performances I can remember that's just so funny. And it makes you, it's also great because it makes you realize this is the world that Bud lives in now. He was like this notorious, highly paid hitman, one of the most dangerous dudes in the world, like jet setting, taking contracts, probably to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars, like a month. And now he's like relinquished to this like shitty part of the world, working the shitty job where he can't even like, can't even do that right. You know, it's such a great, like one of my favorite right up there for me with the Hattori Hanzo bit from the first one, like just a great little character building moment. That's like, yeah. How did this guy fall from grace to this degree? Like, it does. You know, it does elicit a little sympathy, but it's more humorous for me. You know, it's no, I think funny.
1: I think it is, too. And I think that very intentionally Tarantino plays with the expectation that we're going to see things go off. I mean, even in that scene that in the office, like you were saying, there's a shotgun prominently in the scene. You're expecting that that is going to be something that is included i think that the the zoom in on the blender is another scene where it's like oh my god like what are they gonna do with this fucking thing <laughs> yeah. and i love that they just don't ever fulfill the expectation it just really bends the story like light around a black hole where it just wings it in another direction and i love that and i think it's one of the cool things about the movie i really like this character and i am kind of half frustrated that we never see him go off because i think that would have been awesome because i knew when he was talking about his sword i'm like he's definitely lying about a sword Oh, I, did you I thought that, that? that was intentional, huh? Did you see? Well,
0: see, that's something. No, yeah. No, when, when he
1: was like, I saw it with that pawn, the sword, or whatever. I'm like, I don't think so. I don't. I don't think you did. See, I know that. was one it. thing I said in my, in my mind, like in my in my gut, and it was hysterical because he's like, "That's priceless." <laughs> <laughs> he's like, "Well, here in El Paso, is worth two hundred and fifty dollars or whatever." <laughs> it was pretty cool. So i I really liked that character. How did you deal with um watching his confrontation with B and? how the buried alive thing i mean that that was it rough for you to uh to witness that
0: dude i mean first of all the it's true you remind me of something the misdirection with that character it's like you see the bride like go after and succeed against these notoriously like crazy vernita green like you see that night fight like this girl like she might be a housewife now but she hasn't lost a step like she could fight and then like taking out like a yakuza you know, crime boss in Oren Ishii and like, you're like, when she comes for Bud, you're like, oh, this guy's fucking done. Like, there's no way, like you see what she's capable of. The bride is just going to have this guy for breakfast. So I love that Indiana Jones, like Raiders misdirect where it's like, yeah, he just, he's on top of it. You know what I mean? It (laughs) makes you realize like, wow, this might've been the most badass dude of the group at one point. Like, wow. Like again, that fall from grace. But yeah, man, the buried alive thing—very, very very difficult for me to watch. I have to fast forward through it a little bit, actually. I've seen it already. I probably talked to us on the show before, talked about this, but I'm a really bad claustrophobic. Like I could barely go in an elevator. Like I go, I go in an elevator if I at a necessity, but I'm not happy about it. Like, and that is weird because I didn't grow up with claustrophobia or being claustrophobic. Like that's something that happened to me probably in my twenties. So yeah, again, the nightmare, a lot of people could probably speak to this, right? Like the nightmare of being buried alive is just like unthinkable. It's fucking unthinkable. And again, like not only to show how notoriously evil this group of people are in the film, but again, like showing, like doubling down on like, Tarantino's not afraid to go there. He's going to put this person, this hero in the worst possible predicament. For her to get out of like we saw with volume one with being prostituted as like a, you know, as a, you know, somebody in a coma, like, mm. holy shit, you know, very difficult to watch, very uncomfortable. And I love the way they tie it to the three, the three inch or the five inch punch that Pi may teaches her. So they tie they interwove that whole thing, which is really clever. And you're, you're wondering like, how is this, how is she going to get out of this? Like how much worse can it get for this person? For our protagonist. Such, such good shit. And also, like, the fact of, like, even though Bud's not up with his sword play and he doesn't have this physical prowess or he doesn't care to try, whichever one or a combination of the two things, he's still going to get the best of this person. It's Like, who... You know, it's, it's really good shit. Like, who is this guy? Props to Tarantino and Michael Madsen for building this character and putting the bride in this fucking scenario. It's like, you know, they i mean the barrier alive and the whole thing of like you can get buried alive with the flashlight or with the can of mace in your face like dude just just good shit and very very hard to very hard for me to watch i can't imagine anybody enjoying that you know it's like oh my god can we get out of this situation already like what, how long is this gonna last
1: it's yeah it's tough to watch and i do agree that it is cool to flash back to this this uh Mystic character that I guess they're all somehow associated with Pai Mei. I love, by the way, the whoever plays this character and the way they play the character is just I think hysterical. Yeah, like the oh, constant, like, oh. like the constant. That's you know, Gordon Liu grooming. I don't know anything about this person, so oh yeah, uh, I got I got to school. Yeah, so Gordon. so talk talk to me a little bit about him. School me.
0: So he's a martial, he's a Hong Kong Chinese cinema superstar dating back decades, and you know, like I grew up, you know, we come up. My Generation, Generation X, you know, it was like the whole thing in the early to mid-90s with Wu-Tang Clan sort of putting it on our radar. But also, I talk about this a lot, a surprising amount, but like growing up in New York with Channel 9, WWOR-TV, it was Kung Fu movies on Sunday. It was like, it was like Asian cinema. It was like Toho, Godzilla films, Shaw Brothers, Hong Kong cinema, Japanese stuff, like you know, like old, like serial, uh, ninja serial samurai movies and stuff like that. Like we grew up with that. Like it was like a heavy pop culture dose of like, for whatever reason, I never really researched into that or wherever else that was on like the country's radar. But in New York growing up on Long Island, like that was a thing. And like aunt Joni's generation, like I remember her, old, her old boyfriend, uncle Tommy, like that was his thing. Like have a beer, Sunday dinner. Like after Sunday dinners over by like 2.30, like hole up and like watch Kung Fu movies with beers like that was a thing. Bruce Lee, whatever it was. And Gordon Liu was a big part of that. Like if you guys want to go into Gordon Liu and look at one of my favorite Gordon Liu vehicles, there's an old movie that I just happened upon on chance. Like I bought it from like an anime shop in Philly in the 90s called Heroes of the East. It's also sometimes called Shallon Challenges Ninja. And it's about, it's really campy, awesome Kung Fu movie about like a Chinese prince who's betrothed to like this Japanese, like this wealthy Japanese girl. And she's really schooled in Japanese martial arts disciplines, ninjutsu, Bushido, and all that kind of stuff. And he's really schooled in Kung Fu, the Gordon Liu character. And they have this like, their husband and wife and they love each other, but they have this rivalry about what style's better. So it's like, they do like Taekwondo or whatever it is, like whatever Japanese fighting arts it is versus like crane style. And they do, like they compare Bushido versus Chinese swordsmanship and like the different spear, st- spear styles. And they, they pit the Shaolin stuff versus the Japanese stuff. And you get a taste of everything. It's like the Japanese guy sai specialist fights like the like butterfly swords and stuff. So it's everything like, it's super cool if you're into like if you if you want to nerd out. That's what I always remember. Like that's probably like a, tw- a mid twenties Gordon Liu, like just fucking, just beating the shit out of everything. Like so good at every sword style, every martial art. Like he's so great, and it was so cool that for Tarantino like Sonny Chiba to call him up to play the role, and he plays um I forget the Crazy Eighty Eight, the the head of the Crazy Eighty Eights in Part One. He plays that character, and then he plays Pai Mei. He reprises uh, his his appearance for Pai Mei in part two. And he's like, you know, like a Chinese martial arts master. They they have, he relates, Bill relates the whole story that this guy took out a whole Shaolin Temple's worth of dudes just for like insulting him, like not returning a nod type of guy. And he's one of Bill's father figures, one of his mentors. We we already met Hattori Hanzo. We'll meet one, we'll meet uh, Esteban in Mexico. And this was another one of like Bill's mentors that he gets to train the bride in these like Chinese martial arts and Kung Fu. So, so good, dude. One of, what did you think of this sequence? It's very reverential to old martial arts films, Kyle. Certainly. And, you know, pays a lot of homage and makes a lot of nods to those things that Tarantino is singing the praises of. It's, first of all, yeah, this,
1: the especially to me, more of a novice film person the zooms especially were nice call-outs to the to those old kung fu movies like how they'd zoom in on a character and so good like I really enjoyed that and I thought that it was cool that they played up the camp pretty heavy here because I was wondering when the bride is buried alive I'm like what the hell is gonna happen here like how is she going to get out of this and the last thing I expected was that it was gonna be some sort of almost supernatural occurrence that she just you know, gets out of this six foot grave super. I thought she was going to get dug up by someone or something like that at the last second. So it was cool that to to carry that together. And I also think it's cool how they bridge the L character to this training session, how she loses her eye and how she's kind of a less disciplined character. But yeah, I enjoyed the Paime sequence and how he's very casually talking about how he just kills at will and does whatever he wants and he he that weird eye grab he does on l um which is then later done to her other eye i wanted to talk a little bit about l though too she's back in this i'm wondering what you think about why do you think she's the only one that's really focused on in both films as far as like the the assassination squad she's the only one you really see in both films in any major way like for instance i was a little disappointed that we didn't get more vivica fox in this I i was kind of hoping that there would be some sort of flashback scene really seeing them all together, which they never show, which I find, I actually do find weird. That is like, why wouldn't you have some, not fighting or anything, but maybe them just all together, you know, talking or sitting at a table or something like it would have been cool. So I did find that a little bit of a peculiar thing, but I I was wondering why you thought, why you think the focus on her as opposed to the others, like we barely get to know the other characters in comparison. When you compare L to, Vivica's character, it's night and day. We don't really get to know anything about one, and we get to know quite a bit about the other. So, what do you think? What, what do you think about the focus on her and, and why that might be?
0: Yeah, this film makes you realize that you don't see Bill interacting with the Vernita Green character, with the Viv- Vivica Fox character at all, and you don't see him interacting with the Oren Ishii character. You don't see any relationship between those characters. You see Bill react, uh, sort of interact with Sophie a little bit. At the end of one and of course you see him interact with his brother bud and you see him interact with besides beatrix l is the one character assassin character female that you see bud interacting with and i do wonder about that you know you see the biggest bond of relationship between those characters and it's not even really it's not even touched upon with some of the other characters at all So it already develops this inherent, at least the way it was edited, right? This inherent hierarchy of which character is more important than the other. Now you find out later on that Bill is smitten with blondes, right? You know pretty much, you're not really too sure. I was thinking about this, Kyle, like the Vernita character and the Oren Ishii character. I'm not sure if they had any sort of romantic ties to Bill, but you know the Beatrix the L character and the Sophie character all have some sort of a romantic relationship with Bill. Just the way they interact, there's like a tenderness there for the interactions we see and some sort of sexual tension and all that kind of stuff. And it is interesting and it makes me realize like the L and the Beatrix character probably had the biggest internal rivalry. I think they even speak to that. Like the L character says like, like Bud talks about, like which R do you most relate to? Regret? or relief and like not, not having your rival around anymore. And L character says like, yeah, she kind of relates to that. She's like, yeah, like it's going to be hard not having her. Like, and I can't believe you killed her. Like she, she, she deserved a better death than a, you know, to die at the hands of Bud. Like there's a reverence there and a rivalry between the two that we see. Like even in the first one, L is going to give her like a lethal injection and it's called off at the last minute. So here, like you, you, you could see it's something personal. You know, whether that's vying for Bill's affections or whether it's a you see they're pretty evenly matched fighting, even Elle with the one eye when they when they do the whole set piece battle in the trailer. So there's some sort of rivalry between Elle and Beatrix that's a little more pronounced than maybe the other characters. It's a little more personal between those two. Which is interesting. And Daryl Hamm is really good, man. She's really good in this. It's an interesting character for me because as an actress, I know she's done a lot of things and she's like a household name, but Besides this, like I go all the way back to like Splash. Like I don't even know a lot of stuff that she's done. She's and she's still iconic to me for some reason. Like I know she's done a lot of stuff in between those two projects. But yeah, she's really good in this and supposedly it's rumored that she's going to come back in this supposed Kill Bill Volume 3. It's going to be like an obviously blind L, spoilers. Sophie, armless Sophie basically looking after little Nikki as like her mentors little Nikki green and it's gonna be them like that set the remainder of the viper assassination squad versus uh beatrix and bb which is you know dude bring it like you got you know you got um maya hawk she's of age we love her already in stranger things we know she has the chops like it's uma thurman and ethan hawk's kid like i think i think this is it like even if Tarantino's like, I don't know if I want to end it on a franchise like a sequel note, like do eleven movies, you know what I mean? But give us the Kill Bill three. It's especially to bring something back after twenty years. That's rarely done. It's already like that's already newsworthy. So even if it sucks, like we're gonna we're gonna watch it. <laughs> you know. What yeah, I mean? my hope
1: my hope is is that if if that does happen, that it is not the. Doesn't take the place of one of a movie, yeah. Yeah, do,
0: do two more, you know. He's yeah, you still, gotta a, do something. I think man. you
1: have to do you have if he really is gonna hold to that. I really do feel like he had it's imperative. He an- ends on something like his opus, like an original piece. You have what do you to, think that could be? I don't, I have no idea what that could be. I mean, the only thing I say, and I said this in the last episode, is I think that it would be very cool to have a massive in some way, inclusion of as many actors that he has used as possible. That's a great idea. Anyone, anyone that he likes, you know, obviously all the people, the mainstays, but it would be cool to go pick off like David Carradine's dead, obviously, but it would be cool to go pick off like some of these people that you maybe see once or twice or three times. And sure. How can you fold them all in? We haven't seen John Travolta in a while. Like, right. We haven't seen like some of these people. It'd be cool. Tarantino
0: movie. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Dude, that's a great, that's a, that's a great vehicle. Just work from that. You know, how can you make that happen? You know what genre? Something like a, that he hasn't explored yeah, yet. Whatever, like you
1: know. an Ocean's Twelve type thing, maybe. But That'd have sick. the characters all be like his 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 cache of people that he's used. You know, I mean, that's kind awesome. done a heist movie.
0: He really has he. I mean, there's elements of heist in some of his things, but he yeah. hasn't done a straight up heist movie. That's a great uh, dude. He'd be he'd be great for that, John.
1: I mean, imagine uma thurman and john travolta and samuel jackson Sam jackson, and, jackson yeah be awesome. michael
0: madsen right um be yeah, very
1: cool just a, a whole slate of of wonderful actors so that's that's all i mean i, I would not even deign to assume leo, what else Jamie would be fox right all these guys right.
0: like oh, right oh yeah leo sick. of course
1: leo. so Pitt. yeah it would be it would be great and I, I would be excited about that. But I think I would like to see more Kill Bill as well. I mean, but, but what's interesting is that I I feel like the questions that remain for me are not things that have yet to happen, but things that have happened that we just didn't understand. Like, unfortunately, he is he squandered unless he has like some archival footage that we don't know about. Like the and it can't possibly happen now because David Carradine's dead. But it we lost the ability of having them all together. So you can't really go back and tell their story now of anything right. they did, like any of their exploits. They're all too old. Right. It's like it's kind of a shame. It, I really, we are missing context of what they were ever really even doing. We know they were sent out on these missions and, but it's like what, we don't have any idea. It's almost very Cobra-like thing where it's like, who is, what are the bad guys doing? Why are they doing this? Who, for what purpose? Where do you get your money and where do you get your weapons? And it's just, it's a wild thing. We also really don't know, even though we know that There are people that are sorry that they helped unleash Bill into the world. We don't really know why. Is it just because he's an assassin? Because all the people that trained him must have known that so that we don't really even and I might be missing something, Hmm. but we don't really know the essence, right, of what Bill did that made him that made all these people turn on him. Am I wrong about that?
0: Yeah, like, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah, we—that's uh, true. We never—he's the MacGuffin, right? Or Bill's head on a mm. plate is the MacGuffin. Like, yeah, that's what—that's what our hero's after. But there is that story of like everybody that the bride meets along the way is helping her. Even Esteban, who raised this guy, you know, because. And, you know, why, and I don't think he wronged Esteban, but the other two, like, let's say Pai Mei and, and Hanzo, and you know there's probably others, right, that were father figures or mentors or learned Bill in his craft. I don't know, like, maybe, maybe they did train, you know, Pai Mei trained Bill in Kung Fu. One of the foremost Bushido, you know, legends in Japan trained him in ninjutsu, whatever, right? And, that, and by the way, we know Bill is not a sword maker, right? He's not a black, he's not a smithy. Like Hattori Hanzo obviously taught this guy ninjutsu, not how to make ninja swords. So we got, which is not something that we have to kind of pick that out of the, you know, we have to kind of create that story for ourselves, but that's what it's saying to me. So maybe they did, maybe he was trained in these martial arts and then Bill took it and sort of turned it on its head and said, I'm going to use these things for evil, or I'm going to use these things for profit or for murder. And maybe, you know, when he took that turn, that's when Hanzo hung up you know, his sword making thing was like, I'm going to, I'm going to stop doing this. Like I created a monster. We talked about that in volume one, same thing with a guy like Pai Mei, like, yeah, Pai Mei's full of himself. He's super proud and all that kind of stuff, but he's not evil. He's obviously not evil. So that's an interesting question. And it is kind of sad that we don't have Carradine anymore to explore that with, but even in a prequel capacity, like, yeah, what happened there? Like, was it, was it simply that? Was it that he took all these things, he t- he kind of flew in the face of all these people that spent time with him and nurtured him and then said, I'm going to use these things for, I'm not going to use these things for good. Fuck you guys. Like, you guys taught me all your tricks. Now I'm going to go out and like, you know, rule the world with it and be a murderous bastard, basically. And he is a bastard. That's what makes the Carradine character so like poignant. Like, he's this warm dude. Like, I don't know. He's He's a really special character, right? Like, We talked about that before like distinguished charismatic he's got that style like where it's a little bit he's channeling a little native american but it's also very eastern very comfortable in his skin there's a magnetism to this dude like you 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 get it like with the bride character like we're kind of her a little bit like we're like yeah i get this dude like he's he's charming you know what i mean he's that's his thing right he's snake charmer that's his that's his handle or whatever and yeah, you—that's exactly what he is. He's sick. Like he's—I I would love to age like being like this, distinguished and this stylish, and like kind of walking around with the bare feet. Like he's like a—you know—he's like one of those dudes. He's like—he's like holy. He's like heading up a dojo somewhere. Like everybody admires him, like type of thing. But yeah, dude, it would be great to get a little more of that story. Definitely leaves us guessing. But um, yeah, huge caradine dude yeah i didn't realize he died in 2009 which is yeah
1: it's a long time ago a long time ago yeah, yeah i agree and that's why in my hope it would be my hope i guess you were asking like what, what could it be it would be cool if T- tarantino had some archival footage again or, or or anticipated the need of a third movie in the future in which you would need some footage or some of them together it would be really cool if that existed but i highly doubt that so i guess what i'm saying is, is that if they're not going to answer and really can't answer the most pressing questions, I don't think moving forward and bringing up more shit is a good idea. I think they should mm. leave it alone, you know, at that point, because I'm not so sure that that's it's funny to bring back Sophie and bring back Elle and and all of that and and bring it all the way back to the first scene where she talks to the daughter and says to come find her if she has a problem with it. It's cool, but it's also a little on the nose yeah, yeah maybe i mean
0: making is it on the i don't know i mean making something out of this like a side story like something you kind of like just like you see and then you're like oh that's interesting and then you forget about it in five minutes and then it's like no that's like that little thing is going to be turned into the rest of this story and who knows maybe you could answer the questions you have if you know the sophie character and the l character are going to be the mentors now and they're still going to be like in bill's camp like it's like cobra kai versus daniel son right it's like No, we're going to double down. Like, that's our legacy. We're going to double down on, like, the Deadly Viper assassination squad versus the bride and her protege, you know? And in that, you know, you can understand, Nikki, Nikki's mom was murdered right in front of her. as like whatever she is at that time, five years old. So her wanting vengeance makes sense. The other ones trying to exact their vengeance via Nikki makes sense. And maybe you could answer the questions, those questions you have in that whole thing of, like, you know, the bride saying, no, like, you guys doubling down on this evil bastard, here, here's why that's not a good idea. Like, he betrayed all of his masters, you know what I mean? So, and and here's why. Here's what exactly happened, you know, and maybe you even get some of those other mentors in there. I don't know who that would be, but, you know, besides Esteban, besides Paime, besides Hattori Hanzo, maybe you get the other, the rest of, like, the father figures in there, which would be co- kind of a cool thing, too. Like, who else... Who else taught this guy all their, their trade secrets and then he betrays, you know, who knows what else you could incorporate in there. Maybe you get Jet Li in there. You know what I mean? What do
1: you make of the... We had brought up... That would be cool. We had brought that up earlier cool. about the almost supernatural way that Beatrix gets out of her grave. Now, there is all sorts of really supernatural stuff in the two movies, so it's not really that surprising. But what do you make of the the kind of ungrounded nature of this film. Uh, Do you buy it? Like, does it bother you that they embrace the ridiculousness? I I assume that's kind of an ode to the Kung Fu films as well, but it just seems like this movie effectively braids these two unrelated things together pretty well. This, This more serious story about rage and revenge and then this really hokey supernatural Kung Fu thing. And I think it kind of all comes out there. So I'm just wondering what you make of that
0: aspect of it. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you know, I'm down for a cartoon and, you know, I could suspend my disbelief. That's just my taste. You know, I just want to see something stylish. I want to see something fun. I'm smitten by the, you know, the clever dialogue. And I really love like the send ups. You know, I'm a sucker for that kind of stuff. Like, yeah, let's send up... You said it earlier, Kyle. Like, let's send up the old Shaw Brothers Kung Fu movies. We got, like, the crash zooms and the campy sound effects and the musical stings, right? And you got, like, the playing footage backwards, right? Like, that's an old... You know, in camera technique, like Pi May throws the sword back in the rack, and it's just played backwards. Like all that kind of stuff. Like I get it. I know what you're being reverential of. I know what you're what you're sending up there. I, you know, I'm down. Like I grew up with that shit shit too. Even though you're older than me, so I love all that. Like I I love a stylized treatment. It doesn't bother me that you're meshing those two things. You're right. It is a revenge movie uh, at its core, and then you're basically just pulling in all these things. You know, again, like we talked about spaghetti western. Blaxploitation, Shaw Brothers, Kung Fu, um, French New Wave, whatever you're, whatever you're incorporating into that stew, like I'm down for that, and I, 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 like the campiness. Like I like Pai Mei jumping up on the sword. I love the mysticism. Like that's why I love ninjitsu. Like that's one thing this movie doesn't do. Where you get the Kung Fu, there's probably the most mysticism involved in Kung Fu in, in so far as the martial arts go, but you don't get the mysticism. Tied to ninjutsu. The ninjutsu is very grounded. It's like katana, sword, sword play, sword fighting, but you don't get the ninja magic. They're not disappearing. They're not summoning dragons or it's like not ninja fire or you know this vanishing in a cloud of smoke. Like you don't get any of that shit. Which I wonder if it was restraint or if that was just a stylistic choice. You know where you don't you don't. I mean, Hattori Hanzo. I mean, that's like that's like the legendary shit. It's like these were. They were mystics. They weren't just ninjas. They didn't just do, like, the the tactile, like, swordplay, physical weapon thing. It was, like, magic involved in that kind of stuff. Like, a, a level of vanishing and all that kind of stuff that wasn't... That the, the the basic, normal human wasn't capable of. It was almost, like, force-like. Like a Star Wars type thing. So, but, you know, for me, I don't mind it. The one thing, though... And you, you might have been going there, so um, I don't want to oversteer, but... Is... The last 45 minutes, you know, this movie doesn't culminate in a giant set piece battle like the House of Blue Leaves in the first volume. You know, it doesn't culminate in this big, action-packed, violent escapade, it, which is unexpected. Again, misdirection, that's okay. Like, I kind of like it for that. You know, it has a very, like, Hemingway-esque short story. Like, Quentin Tarantino, Tarantino knows how to t- tell a story and he knows how to surprise us. And he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to redo volume one, right? He doesn't want it to culminate in some like, you know, memorable battle. It's different. It's kind of a, it kind of culminates in a conversation with a very small battle at the end. And then one brief interlude when it goes off to like the bride discovering that she's pregnant and her, you know, that sort of line of demarcation of saying like, okay, I'm going to leave this life. So they do explain that. But what do you make of that? Because I'm looking at the clock. I'm watching this on HBO Max. I'm looking at the clock. I'm saying, wow, this, she's kind of arriving in Acuna in Mexico at Bill's abode, right? And, she, and I'm looking at the, th- the time and I'm like, wow, this has 45 minutes left. And I know what to expect because I've seen it already. But what did you make of that? And now, of course, like the big surprise as well. Like there's a big, a big surprise for our hero now that changes things. So what did you make of that? What did you make of the ending yeah. the last 45 minutes of the film? You get a lot more of Bill. What Was that a surprise for you?
1: Yeah, it was a little bit of a surprise. I feel like one of the coolest things about this film is its pacing and the way it deals with the cadence and the way it rolls things out. It's not a traditional film. It doesn't culminate in action and it has a resolution but not really. It, it opens up a whole new series of questions I, I dig that about this film and I think that a lot of that actually begins even further back when L is fighting the bride in the um in Budge trailer I like that whole scene with the snake and then there's this really cool fight scene in this really constrained area it's very oh, it's different so it's like the antithesis of what was going on in the restaurant so I like that kind of balance Great between porn. them and
0: yeah, yeah they can't and, even get their swords out
1: right exactly There's a lot so of cool good. stuff like it, it's kit. it's this really contains space. And so I dig that. And at that point, and what I really dig about that scene, by the way, I should say as well, is that you're waiting for it very is very video game like in, in that they identify the bosses, basically like the bad guys that, you know, you're going to go after. And if you put the two movies together, like you kill one of them right away, and then there's another death at the end of that one. But then you kind of go through this movie for a while and there's just a bunch of lingering time. And then they kill two of them like right away. And they don't technically kill one of them, but, I like how they're taken care of, like, bam, bam. After all this time, like, there's just a bunch of empty space with it. No boss fight, no boss fight, no boss fight, as it were. And then suddenly it arrives at this moment where she takes care of Bud and then Ella comes, or I'm sorry, and then Ella's taken care of by the bride. And it's just like, bam, bam. And then it's three, four. They're both out. And then all you're left with is Bill. So th- it plays with the, the K- I like the way they play with timing, in that regard, so it makes a lot of sense when you're when it's all culminating in this final scene that he would pull the rugged from out from under the action and say, like, okay, now we're gonna slow it down. And I really thought that the the fight scene with the fake guns when she first walks in and stuff. That's awesome. It's a great, really great scene. You awesome like that acting. Stuff. Yeah, I, I think oh, it's I was- cool. Like that was great acting. Like really it shows either how sadistic and sociopathic bill is that he's able to kind of turn on like he's prepared it's totally natural he's very cool and calm there's nothing untoward or wrong about it i like how they set the seed of how the the little girl bb is really into the same stuff like kung fu movies and combat and gunplay and all that kind of stuff so the seed is set there which i think is nice but i do like the slow narrative nature of it i love the scene where he's making the sandwiches and just talking and cutting the ends off and it's just like a really a lot of as we said in the first one a lot of shot like uninterrupted shots a lot of real acting going on no tricks and while it's cool that he eventually pulls a sword on her and he does she does like the five point palm exploding heart technique or whatever (laughs) it's it's not by the end of it it's not really what we were watching for and I would argue that when you put the two movies together that in fact I think the most boring even though it's cool the most boring part of the movie at the same time is the stuff that happens in that restaurant, because I think it it's not truly what makes the movies interesting. I don't think so. I liked that. And you're right. It's cool how they 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 do explain why she gets out and why they're going after her. I guess in a way why they're going after Bill. You know, it's Bill's kid. He seems to understand that and know that. I like how we, we meet one of the a random another assassin that I guess works for someone else with the shotgun. That's so great. and I like how she says, not that I have to be at this range, but I'm a fucking surgeon with the shotgun. <laughs> it's a great line. Character. So like there's they're introducing like characters that have these like different weapons of choice and stuff, which I, I love that kind of stuff. I dig that. It surpasses my it surpassed my expectations of what I thought the movie was going to end like, which I thought was going to be another one of those bracketed fight scene. type And, and it's nothing wrong with that, but. It's just not what I'm particularly looking for, and I don't think it's also where he shines. So there's just so much l- less blood in this movie. There's less combat. Yeah, it's a much cleaner movie. Agree. And yeah. I I I think it's cool from that regard, uh, personally. Yeah. What did you? So what did you make of that that end scene with the the uh, the dart and the truth serum and all the weird? <laughs> it gets a little weird. But
0: it's it's weird. It is unexpected, and I like. I like it for that. I mean, the popcorn guy, video game guy in me kind of wants to see everything resolve in like a big battle. But, you know, you got to remember as a filmmaker, you know, you want to follow up with something different. And it is smart to, to do something different and resolve the entire story, not just this volume, but the entire story with a different treatment. And, you know, one thing that it does is it does paint Bill as a really insidious dude. Again, that charm, that forethought, you know, th- and thinking like he's got all his bases covered. Like he's ready for any eventuality. Like this guy is just like, he's a planner and he's a malevolent dude. Like he's a manipulator, you know? And um, for all his charm on the surface and for as magnetic as he is, yeah, he's, he's, at, he's out for number one, you know? And there's something really interesting that occurred to me in watching it this time. And it was a cool surprise because I hadn't seen it in a while. And you forget all the little nuances, and ins and outs. And, you know, something that the dynamic changes when the bride gets here in this last 45 minutes, you're on this journey of revenge with her through the entire first movie and most of the second movie. And she's just like this relentless ball of vengeance, unstoppable. You know, her, her entire being is committed to getting her revenge and she'll stop at nothing. And don't forget, she's up against some of the, like the most dangerous people in this world, in this universe, right? Like, it's almost suicidal, right? It's like I'm gonna stop there. I have nothing to live for anyway. I'm gonna roll through like a ball of lightning and just take out as many people as I can. And there's no bigger scene than the you know her facing down Oren and her crazy eighty-eight in Japan, you know, in Tokyo than that thing. Like she's down for, she's as murderous as it gets. And maybe even willing to sacrifice life and limb to that end, obviously, right? Like she's crazed. But when she arrives at Bill's house in Mexico, the dynamic shifts because now she realizes her daughter's alive. So, as a mom, right? As a parent, you think, all right, now she has something to live for. And she's up against the big boss now, right? She finally got there. She's up against the most dangerous dude. Like, this is like Bowser, right? Right? This is King Koopa. You got through all the mini bosses. Now you're the, even, like, even like the chief lieutenants, like L, they're vanquished. Now you're at your goal and the most dangerous part of your mission. At the same time, realizing now there's something to live for. Oh, shit. Right? This is everything she was... This is everything fueling her revenge. You know? Not just that she was wronged, but mostly the fact that her daughter was robbed of her. Right? So now it's like, all right, what is she going to do? And you're wondering, like, she's interacting with this old lover. How much of it could be forgived? How much of that familiarity is going to return? Soften it. Is it going to be softened? Is there going to be some sort of agreement? Can they just walk away? You're really wondering that throughout the whole scene. Like, how much of it is going to culminate in an actual duel? And then you realize a certain way in that, no, she's fucking... Co- it, she, they might be softening, having a conversation. It might be cute, nostalgic, and all that kind of stuff. But she's going to... This dude's dead. And she's committed to that idea. And he better defend himself. Like, he's notorious for k- taking care of himself. He better bring it. And you're like, oh, so it doesn't... You know, So she's even putting that above, interestingly enough, like, trying to stay alive for her daughter. Like, she's, she's, she's all in. The bride, Beatrix, is all in. And you realize that. But Bill has, you know, he's he's got a gun, he's strapped, he's got a truth serum. Like, he's ready. Like, he's ready to defend himself. He's ready to, like, he's ready to be the guy who survives this thing. So it makes her a really interesting exchange. And, you know, Tarantino's doing here what he does best. You got great actors in Uma Thurman and Carradine that really steal the spotlight and are great performers. They're finally together in the same room after this long journey. And he's doing some crazy shit. Like, it's like it's it's happening. It, are we actually nerding out about making sandwiches right now? And I want one? Like it's like and it's like a 70s and 80s, Nick. It's like white bread. Right. Processed cheese. Yeah, the ham bimbo and white bologna, bread. Right? Yeah. yeah, this isn't like a nitrate free, like roast beef and oat bread. Like, this is like we and like you're in, like, you're like he's like making a sandwich with and, and spreading the mayonnaise and you're like forgetting about the whole thing. You're just like, oh, we're nerding out about making sandwiches right now. I'm completely derailed. Like, Tarantino gets you like that. He doesn't get enough credit for that. It's like, we're, we're literally nerding out about making sandwiches right now. Like he's done in the past in other films with like bowls of cereal, right? And so you got all that going on, which is really enjoyable and important to note, I think. And then of course you have the interlude with cutting away to this scene where the bride is on this contract, you know, somewhere in in foreign lands. And she realizes like, I don't want this life anymore. And it paints the whole picture of why she's trying to escape from Bill, why she's trying to escape the life and be more domesticated and just work at a record store and be married to some dude and be a mom and leave this life of like, you know, riches basically, you know? And, in the beginning of the movie, you wonder, like, okay, like, how much do I relate to Bill here? He's wronged, too. Like, he obvi- even though he keeps this, like, he keeps, like, a-, a harem, basically, he did love this woman. And she did leave unasked for and stuff like that. And there is part of him, and he's hurt by it. And he, as he says, he overreacts. But also, you see her side now of, like, why this all went down. But also what I love about that little cutaway, the Karen Kim sequence and the Chow contract and all that kind of stuff is that you realize this is a world of like spy versus spy. Like this is like this this crazy clandestine fictional world of like assassin versus assassin. And I would love to get like more of that. Like there's this crazy underworld going on here that we just get a glimpse of. Like we just get a little taste of. And that was cool too. And it gives you an idea of like, not just the riches that she's walking away from, but it kind of makes you sympathize as a parent. Like, yeah, okay, you don't want to live like this. As a parent, like where your life's on the line, morning, noon, and night. So you get a little bit bit of each one of those things in the 45 minutes. And then, of course, culminating in the bride revealing, a lot of reveals in this last hour, you know, revealing that Pai Mei has taught her this technique that he didn't teach any of his other... Pupils. The one thing, right? They say like a great master teaches like ninety nine percent of their tricks, but never a hundred, right? Because you want to be the ma- you want to stay the master. But apparently, this guy she she found a real mentor, not only in Hatori Hanzo but in paime and that he taught her everything he knew. And at some point, was murdered by L after the fact, poisoned by L. But that that's another big reveal. It's like oh shit, like. She's got some proper mentors, and that makes, you, that makes me realize in the last 10 minutes of the film, like, "Oh, I want to see more of the bride." Like now you know like she's, like, she's a force to truly be reckoned with, even in this world of like really dangerous people. And um, uses the technique on Bill. By the way, I have to say, Kyle, I've rewinded this a few times. I'm not wrong. He takes six steps, not five. Does that mean that Bill is extra? powerful because supposed to be five steps then your heart explodes and you die right bill takes
1: six. yeah that's a, in, interesting i don't know i i do like how i love that scene because he, he it's very subtle use of it he's sputtering blood and it takes time i guess to work its way through him or whatever and it's, it's very calm and he understands that he's defeated it's a very it's a very interesting scene very heady scene and for all the build-up of violence and conflict In the series. It is cool that it doesn't end like that. It's not Star Wars. Where it needs to end with a big planetary orbital battle. And lightsaber duels. And whatnot. And I like that he avoided doing that. And he doesn't always do that in his films. Obviously you think about Django Unchained or something. Which ends in just havoc. Um, And that's fine too. But. I think that. Changing it up. And I think especially. Shaking up audience expectations after such a violent first film is just the obvious choice in, in hindsight. But I think it's like maybe not the easy choice. And I think he, he made the right choice by culminating the film with dialogue and great acting as opposed to action. And I loved it. I thought it was awesome. So is there anything we didn't talk about, Dave, that you wanted to touch on?
0: I really like that you liked the movie. And I really, I really, I'm really psyched that you enjoyed the ending. It also occurs to me, like it's very Tarantino-esque kind of an fu to the audience too of like you're not not only you're not going to get the house of blue leaves again these two characters are just going to sit down and finish each other they're not even going to stand up like it's like doubling down on like not having that dynamic action scene like they literally they're literally sitting down at on lawn furniture when and fighting at the end they don't even get up from their chairs like that's like that's that's some really clever clever shit there's there's one thing I wanted to ask you, but there's two things I wanted to ask you about, Kyle. First of all, my maybe my favorite scene in the movie, when the bride arrives in Mexico, and she's in Acuna, and she's seeking out one of Bill's father figures, right? This guy, this Mexican pimp, retired pimp, notorious, right? Esteban Vejeo, and played by Michael Parks. Dude, I, I, I wanted to talk to you about this scene, because here you have Michael Parks, who... I told you played it. He was in part one. He played the sheriff. And I told you, this guy's going to play another role in part two, and he's going to be so buried in that role that it's going to be very hard to mm. identify him. Great character actor. Does other stuff too, but works with some other directors. One of, the, like, one of the really great character actors. And I don't know Michael Park's like exact ethnic background, but he's playing this old Mexican man here. And you're buying every second of it. You know, this gentleman of leisure, like, very sophisticated, um, very well-spoken and articulate. A gentleman, right? Like, this, this retired gentleman, right? And he's interacting with the bride, and she's trying to, like, treat him with kid gloves. Like, she's trying to be respectful, but she's also saying, like, where the fuck is Bill? Like... I'm not, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you to tell me where's Bill. It's a great interaction fraught with tension, but also like really, like really charming because both characters are at their most charming in the scene. And I was just wondering what you thought of the performances and what you thought of this interaction. It's only like a 10 minute scene. And, uh, like this guy's like a monster, obviously, but he's one of those characters. Like you could see this guy being one of Bill's father figures, Get, also gives us some some origins because he was supposedly the guy who took Bill in as an orphan. He was he was Bill's first mentor, first father figure. What did you make of this bit?
1: I loved the, the 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 he says something like where he was sucking his dumb to a gratuitous amount or something. It was like, yeah, really great line whatever he says there. It is a great performance. I agree he's monstrous and they they indicate it not because he's a he's a pimp necessarily, and that obviously makes him bad too, not sex work per se, but But also, I love the scene when he brings over the girl and she's got like just the the cut lip or whatever. And he indicated earlier that. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I again, a really a scene that is rife with violence, yet no action,
0: no overt violence. Right. Yeah. The
1: violence is there all over that scene, but not in the action, which is cool. Uh, yeah, so I dug that scene as well. You said that there was another scene you wanted to bring up?
0: Yeah, and you know that whole thing where it kind of it culminates in like, well, why are you helping me? And he's like, well, how is he going to see, you know, I love this guy, like, how is he going to see you again? He wants, he would obviously want me to help you, you know, that whole thing. is very clever. Yeah, the last bit, and I never talked about this with anybody, so for those of you who haven't seen it, of course, tune out, but BB and Beatrix leave Bill's house. Bill's vanquished, right? The devil is, the demon is vanquished. We get, she uh, fulfills her quest, the bride, and she's leaving with, with BB and they, they're holing up somewhere in some hotel room. And she's laughing to tear, to the point of tears on like the, the hotel bathroom floor. And it made me realize, okay, that is the euphoria from the truth serum that he says, like, there's no side effects save mm. a wave of euphoria. I think that's what it is. Now, I never talked about this with anybody, and I never thought to ask anybody, and I never heard anybody speak of this, but is that what that is at the end where it's like, and she says thank you, you know, off into space somewhere. She's just saying thank you to nobody. Is, is she thanking Bill for that wave of euphoria? Is that Bill's last, you know, is that his mm. last sort of... Um, brush with the living is that his last thing that he bestows upon the bride even in death like that that brief passing of euphoria from the truth serum that he invents um is that what that is or is that something that i'm not reading right i don't know yeah i bet
1: i bet you it probably is i didn't interpret it that way but i'm not a very deep filmic thinker either so (laughs) you are you're probably you're probably right because it seems like the euphoria thing would otherwise be just another kind of throwaway line that didn't mean anything i kind of had just interpreted it as the everything leaving her We i've been in situations where i was laughing and crying at the same time you know like have I've you been, really
0: i can't think yeah. of a situation like that
1: like well i think when i left kind of funny it was probably a feeling where i was like really sad and really elated at the same time like very sad to say goodbye and let go of something i loved but also elated that i didn't have to be there sure anymore, you know that you know?
0: makes sense when things get To a heightened emotional level, especially if it's something sad or anxiety ridden or um, maybe even angry. Yeah, I can see it. It
1: it, it could hurt. I've yeah, I've I've been hurt deeply in my heart and felt a wave of relief at the same time before. Yeah, I've been in I've I've talked about in the past that I've had these really encapsulated moments. I remember only one of them in hindsight very well, where my ex a long time ago broke up with me over 10 years ago now. And uh, she lived in Oakland at the time. We got back together later, but she broke up with me and I was like, I remember her, I remember getting out of her car at like some train station in Oakland. And I just remember taking the BART back to San Francisco and feeling, I was listening to music on my phone and I was just like, I feel pretty good. You know, like it was sadness of goodbye, but also just this incredible relief of being like oh my god like it's over it's done it's just over i don't have to worry about this anymore and i feel like emotion maybe i mean i'm i have mental problems obviously i'm depressed and anxious and all these and ocd and all these kinds of things so i'm not like the i'm not the uh a bill of perfect mental health by any chance of the amount you know any chance it's not not true but i do feel like emotion just comes sometimes in these contradictory waves where you can laugh until you cry like that is some sort of like circular reaction
0: yes right? yeah yeah yeah.
1: even if nothing sad is happening so i don't know i I've, i can relate just because i've been there a few times in my life where it's like these two conflicting things that shouldn't exist together do and and i just you know you roll with it and now you usually settle in one or the other at that point after that what makes that so memorable to me is that after that happened i settled into this like great year of being single basically, right? Or almost a year of where I was just like that fine, you know? Yeah. And but you can also look at things in hindsight and be like, you're you have miscalibrated your emotion for the worst in this regard too.
0: So it's it a, it's interesting, man. I think that's a really uh, really articulate way to say it. Like especially talking about just a weight off your shoulders. You can talk think about that with the bride character. She's in a coma for four years. She thinks her daughter's dead now she's finding out she's not dead she finally vanquishes this evil dude that wronged her and all of his, you know, his entire, all his underlings. Like everything she went through, being buried alive, being like shot in the in the, the tits with rock salt. Like everything she's gone through on this mission, flying all over the world, traveling to take out these people, all the murder, all the revenge, and it makes you think about like not just the human body, but like the human psyche. Like it's so complicated, right? We're like we're easily the most complicated machine, so all these inherent areas that could go wrong. All the wires that could get crossed, like emotions getting mixed up. Like you could definitely see that, like emotions changing to other emotions unexpectedly, but it's not surprising, you know, when when everything's so complicated in there anyway, if that makes sense. Yeah, I
1: I, I think it makes perfect sense. Which one,
0: so Kyle, at the end of this, which one did you like better? Did you like volume one better or, or Kill Bill volume two better?
1: I think I liked volume two better personally. Yeah. Uh, where I do thought you, you where might you stand. Where do you stand on that?
0: I don't know. You know, like the action dude in me, like the kung fu kid in me, like loves version 1. You know, I love the way the musical accompaniment and the way it's like it's just a little more fun, a little more upbeat, you're getting a little more satisfied in terms of revenge. And this one's a little bit more, again, slower, cerebral. I love the dialogue. I love, like, some of the scenes, like the Esteban scene. Again, I love the Bud and Larry scene at the strip club. Like, some really, like, some of the best dialogue, some of the best acting, little pockets of acting that I can not even think about, Tarantino or not, you know? So it's a, clo- it's a close call. I-, I like, number one, just for, I think, for the excitement and the memories of, like, having something so new, you know? And Tarantino, again, like, that unapologetic... Director who's like not afraid to pull in his influences and show them up front in all their glorious color instead of saying like yeah I'm obviously influenced but I'm trying to bury it in what I do you know I don't want that to shine I don't want the reference to shine through that's his that's his style you know what I mean and this is one of only his fourth movie and going back to volume one like you know that was a new thing to drop on the world so just just channeling that excitement. One probably edges out too a little bit for me, but it's close. It's a close one. Yeah. Oh, I I
1: can totally accept that. We do have one last inquiry here from Morris Nine who says, Yo, Morris. Hi, Colin and Dig. Tarantino sought to make a love letter to 70s Kung Fu flicks. Do you believe the series could be made today within the context of identity politics? Would there be an outcry about a white man making a Kung Fu film starring a white woman? Love the show. Have a great one. I think this is a really interesting exit question. My answer is, is that I think Tarantino is pretty immune to this stuff. Because the bigger controversies with him, I remember specifically with um, Django was just the flagrant use of the N-word in his movies. Right. He's always been like that since the 90s. I know it's uncomfortable for some people, but he doesn't care. So I can't imagine that he would give a flying fuck about that. But it might be different for others. I remember there were there were um, shit. Wasn't there a uh, what ghost in the shell movie that was starred like.
0: I think that Jo-han- was Scarlett Baron. Johansson
1: or something like I that, think, right? Was it
0: Scarlett Johansson or Scarlett so, You might be right. It might be yeah, Scarlett something Johansson. Like, yeah,
1: and people had a problem with that. So I think that, yeah, it's, I think it's worth asking yourself that question. And I hate how my own instinct is kind of bucking into this too, because I was watching the show on Netflix, Midnight Mass recently. Oh, how a is mini, it? Miniseries. It's a miniseries. It's good. I, I think it's a great idea. I don't think they know exactly what to do with it. I love okay. Catholic horror. I know you do too. So yeah, it's, it's cool thing. from that regard. But okay. one of the in in watching uh in what well by the way it, it, i before i even move on there are some of these amazing netflix series that are kind of flying under the radar and i got to say i'm i i don't watch it very often yeah and midnight mass was one of those series that i watched where where i was kind of into it you know uh but there's a character in the the show that is in a wheelchair and i was talking now i don't want to spoil anything so i'm not going to spoil it but i i was making the assumption to Micah i was like that must be a disabled actress because there's no way they would put someone in a wheelchair that wasn't disabled now it's not true in the show but that's like where my mind went because i always make these assumptions that you can't like you know a a autistic person must be played by an autistic man a trans woman must be played by a trans woman and stuff and i'm like i don't i don't know like in in playstation land where i exist ghost of tsushima is a really great example of a game that's takes place in Japan, it's about Japanese people, full of Japanese people, no white people or black people or anything and it was made in, you know, Washington state. And right. it's considered a it's considered a wonderful game, like it's a very well-respected game in Japan. So, I think you can have it all these different ways. And right. I don't know that it really matters. I also don't think that Tarantino is a racial film creator and that race is important, but it's certainly not racist. And I think if the intention is not to leave anyone out, then that's all that really matters. So if the intent is to just make a cool film and it's not to be exclusionary, but you're making the best choices and decisions for the production, then that's all that should really matter. But I, I think the question is kind of moot because I just think Tarantino happens to be one of the people where it wouldn't matter one way or the other.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. He, he does almost seem immune. And I remember with Django, like that fell more on Leo's shoulders, right? Like, he got more shit, oddly enough, like, just being an actor in that. Like, and even Jamie Foxx, too. Like, I I do remember those conversations. I mean, yeah, there's a great sensitivity nowadays in this, you know, in our politically correct environment, and some might say overly sensitive, whatever you think. But I think Colin's right. I think if it's done with authenticity and it's genuine, you know, like, Tarantino always says, like, yeah, he he pays homage to black exploitation and black culture and R and B, or whether he's so inspired by Hong Kong cinema and all that kind of stuff. But he'll like cite like, yeah, my mom growing up with my mom, like my stepdad or her longtime boyfriend was black. Like I was raised by a black man. That like that type of thing, and I think that comes through his stuff. Like you know, like he's a little overly into himself sometimes when you listen to interviews and stuff. But I think he does come from that place of of authenticity, where he's an appreciator and he's citing what moves him. You know what I mean? Like if you're moved by this thing, or if you're inspired by this thing, or if you want to tie this bit of culture or music or movies that came before or art, and you want to tie that into what you make, that's, that's the artist's decision. Like, you know what I mean? It's for us to decide whether it feels authentic, but you can't fault somebody for, you know, um, incorporating what they're driven by. Like that seems fucked up to me. Like, that's a bridge too far and like trying to like be this overlord where it's like, you know, like it's not, it's the artist's choice. And we, it's our choice to whether we, we enjoy it or whether we embrace it or reject it, but they, they have every right to do it and we have every right to sort of vet it. Right. To say like, okay, does that, does that strike a chord with me or does that seem fake or does that seem authentic or whatever, you know, that's art. You know what I mean? That's art. So you gotta be able to, um, You gotta give people leave. You gotta give artists, filmmakers, whatever musicians. You gotta give them leave to do their thing, and um, maybe lighten up a little bit. Yeah, maybe. I I
1: yeah, maybe a little bit. It's a (laughs) horse blanket. Yeah, I think um, people really need to lighten up. No doubt about it.
0: It's gonna come full circle though. That PC, that overly, you know, again, like not to insult anybody, a lot of people feel like it's been overly PC. I think you know, in that cyclical nature, just like art, just like content, you know, genre, like that's going to come full circle too. When you go, when things go too far in one direction, it's going to swing back the other way. Look at politics, especially in America, right? Like that's the nature of the beast. You know, when it goes too far the other way, a majority of some kind identify that and then bring it back. It's a pendulum. And uh, I think it's the same thing with that. Like, I think you're going to see it go the other way. I don't think you're going to see it go too far the other way where it's like completely disrespectful and irreverent. Yeah, like, right. You know, 2022 and, is going to be year of pissing everyone off and everybody's oh, yeah. going to be okay with it. No, I think there, you in, in that, in that journey, there's a, there's an offing and it becomes a balance. You know, I think that's hu- Maybe that's overly optimistic, but that's how I feel about it. You know?
1: Yeah. Right on. Well, Dake, it's all we, I think we have to talk about with, kill bill volume yeah, Two, man. 2004 film
0: put that thing to bed
1: uh that was a lot of fun as we always do though we like to end our episodes of knockback with a dad joke so i leave it to you
0: okay this comes from our friend brian henninger frequent collaborator with the <laughs> knockback dad jokes coming to us through instagram dm kyle what do you call a typo on a tombstone <laughs> i don't know a grave mistake
1: that's good i probably could have thought of that if i thought that care- kind of ties carefully.
0: into the episode a little bit too Very a little bit, yeah. not intentional but no just worked out that's good thank you for writing in not bad. well thank you for
1: helping dagan anyway with his thank jokes. you brian i need help uh, like thank- i could get it. you really could <laughs> think uh, uh thank you uh by the way for your love kindness support etc of last stand of knockback sacred symbols defining duke etc we really appreciate it remember to go to patreon.com slash last etc. We'll see you for more Knockback and on the other shows as well. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye. Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC, and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show was conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman, and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. Andrew Morgan, Steven Nieder, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SLVFMA, Jorge Palomino, Daniel Diamor, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Dave Cowell, Tom Quinn, Sorta of Serious Gaming, Unofficial Controller Podcast, Colin Farley, Mark Arnold, Zia Parix, Henry Groth, Joshua Rids, Relentless Rex, Troy Miller, Meyer Katz, Jordan Mittman, J.A. Zhu, Tristan Palacios, Drew Mullen, Christian R., Jad Rita, Kurt M. Gillenberg, Patrick Skipper, Sweaty Mitt, Chris Kelly, Dustin Graff, Peyton Stone, Roberto, Josh Alan Rui, Tyler Watkins, Troilish True, Dan Root, Talisman, Christopher, Randall Holsey, Robbie Nauman, Nuke Dukem, Jim Bob 56, William Holbert, Landon Pipkin, Dr. Stump, Josh Godfrey, Kalike Souza, Vornak, Betty M. Moriarty, Daniel Johnson, H-Trons, Ethan Davies, Jay Getter, Manuel Ochoa, Bjorn Campbell, Jeff Mercado, Gregory Silvinsky, Galja of Fortuna, Boots, Tyler Brown, Poot, Gavin Newland, Saul Balcazar, Zach Parsley, Brian White, Raul Melendez, Eric Harden, Alex Bolton, Matt Martin, Kinnams, Joseph Baker, Rodney Coleman, Chris Moore, Caswell, Anti Kinnanin, Chris, Will Hernandez, Chris Galvin, Justin Gonzalez, Mason Cadillac, Ollie Fritz, Zach Alum, George Anthony Nunez, Kyle Hagel, Christopher, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naaman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., David Bostick, Stewie 108, Patrick Montgomery, Damon W., Tom Cargill, Richter86, Steve Hodge, Holfeldian, Ian Bravo, Barrett Boswell, Christopher Devayo, Chris Morton, Kevin Komaki, Johnny Waffles, Roto24, Jonathan Coach, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Jordan Town, Brian Chand, Organic Produce, Shane St. Pierre, Carlos Algorit, Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubba, Josh Yeager, Martin Beck, Gavin, Joey Andrzejczyk, Nathan R. Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Jacob Bell, Joey Rawlings, Dennis Usel, Eric Finkenbeiner, Lou and Ray Loper, Jonathan Cortez, Dylan Burns, Jason Lusky, Malachi Wall, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Anton K., Brian W. Rath, Alan Tremblay, Tyler Bellow, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zaniga, Sean Battershall, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixie, James Kinslow III, Will Caldwell, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, Adam Kinniston, Tyler Goodwin, William O'Carroll, Jesper Jansen, Max Cannon, Phil Crone, Throw7, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, Petro. Rose, Lockmore, Gio Corsi, Joey Gondaliger, Gerald Pennington, Justin Wagaman, David Iacolucci, Paul Joyce, Edwin Castillo, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Shane Rayum, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Keith A. Lewis, Marius Garson Peterson, Ryan Greenwood, Tyler Harris, Matthew Purdue, Patrick Harper, Madmock Media, Jonathan Rice, and Casual Misfits Gaming.